Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At The End Of The Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. For those listening for the first time, perhaps you've managed to cobble together a working radio out of sorted electrical junk or something like that. This is essentially a travelogue of my train journey around post-apocalyptic England and also bringing you news, updates and whatever else might be useful to you. In the last episode, we managed to escape from a town ruled by a group of radioactive creatures who could walk through walls and could deal out huge amounts of radiation as a weapon. Of course, this only affected the two dozen of us who had left the train to investigate the town, and not everyone who left came back. My friend Zofia Sitko, the temporarily deplaced 19th century Polish woman who fought for Napoleon, barely made it back alive, suffering from a unique form of radiation poisoning. Zofia, who had survived Napoleon's gruelling Russia campaign, was unbelievably resilient and was back on her feet surprisingly quickly. For the historians amongst my listeners, I should of course point out that in Zofia's timeline, Napoleon's Russia campaign was successful rather than the cause of his ruin. Throughout Zofia's convalescence, we had caught up watching pre-apocalypse television box sets. In part to help bring Zofia up to speed with our reality and timeline, but also simply because Zofia loved television. Amongst her favourites were I, Claudius, Twin Peaks, and certain episodes of Doctor Who, usually just the John Pertwee ones. Still, Sophia was eager to get outside, and when Annette Vask announced that her team planned to visit a nearby university, Sophia volunteered to go with them, and I decided I should go as well, as apparently that's my job. The university in question was the world-famous Lockton University, which at its peak had been considered one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Work on the university had started under Cromwell's protectorate, as he wanted to build a significant centre of learning in the north of England to match Oxford and Cambridge in the south. When Charles II came into power, work had started, and it seemed childish to stop such a project. Lockton itself was badly damaged during the apocalypse. Most of the population had fled in the early days of trouble, and then a local warlord had ransacked the university, convinced there would be high-tech weaponry there, and when he couldn't find any, he burned a lot of it down. But as far as Vasco was concerned, the possibility of finding a single book was worth investigating. We set off early in the morning, and it took less than an hour to reach the remains of the university. After a while, the grim display of ruins no longer packs the same emotional punch it once did, but Lockton had been famed for its beautiful architecture, so it was hard not to be moved. We found the remains of a massive bonfire outside the Donwell Gallery, and as it was completely empty of artwork, we could only assume it had all been burned. I had never seen Vasco look so outraged. We moved through buildings and found nothing but destruction. The first library we went to, the Quirk Library, did have some books in it, most in terrible condition or that we already had in plentiful supply. Vasco and her team were busy trying to lift the bookcase that had been turned over when I saw him and it was his outlandish appearance that stopped me from raising the alarm immediately. He was some mixture of medieval knight and special forces soldier. He wore a steel helmet and metal breastplate, but underneath that he wore camouflage fatigues. He carried a variety of weapons, but in his hands was a ridiculously large and very old-looking machine gun that, quite honestly, he was having difficulty carrying. I had left the group and was on your side of the library and could see him clearly. I don't think the knight actually knew we were there, as he was walking quite casually through the library. Then he saw me. We stared at each other across the library for a moment, with neither of us doing anything. Then he lifted his machine gun. I dived for cover behind the bootcase a split second before a volley of gunfire tore through where I'd just been standing. 
I lay on the ground, my heart bumping. Part of me knew I had to move. That yes, while the bootcase was sturdy in construction, it wasn't going to stop a bullet. Zofia shouted out to me, and while I couldn't quite manage words, I made a sound that reassured her I wasn't dead. There was another burst of gunfire that confirmed my theory that related to the bulletproof nature of the bootcase. The bullets cut through it easily and struck the wall behind me. Actually, they also went through the wall. There were further bursts of gunfire, but not directed at me, and could only assume the knight was attacking my companions. I dared to glimpse round the bootcase and could see the knight standing still, slowly trapping back and forth looking for targets. Sophia sprinted across the room and the knight swung round to fire and as he did, Vasca jumped out and hit him with an axe. Vasca actually didn't manage to injure the knight due to his armour, but she did knock him down. Before the knight could do anything, Vasca had pounced on top of him. She tossed the helmet aside and started punching him repeatedly, shouting out with each punch about the extreme philistinism of firing guns in a library. That was a very important rule to Vasca, and in fact she had a long list of rules concerning libraries, museums and art galleries, all of which would result in violent reprisals for broken rules. It's possible she might have beaten him to unconsciousness, or maybe even worse, when reinforcements arrived. A tense standoff ensued between these knights and Vasca's team, which now included Sophia. Both sides pointed guns at each other and there was a lot of shouting. It was only solved by Vasca's insistence that, that if the fight were to continue, could they relocate outside so they wouldn't damage the books. It was Vasca's greater concern for books and her own safety that started the dialogue. The knights realised we weren't trespassing looters and we realised that they weren't the people responsible for the damage to the university. And after a minute or two of calm talking, weapons were lowered and apologies offered and accepted on both sides. The knights seemed broadly happy to help Vasca with her work and told her pretty much all the books had been moved to the Valens library. As you walked across the university, there was still some tension between the two groups. After all, these guys were a little odd and who knew what sort of bad impression we had created. They still hadn't been able to get the axe out of that knight's breastplate. The Valens library was in better condition than most of the buildings and it was clear that some repair work had been carried out. There were guards, dressed in equally unusual mix of medieval armour and modern special forces attire, outside the library, but we were quickly waved past. Personally, I was eager to find out what the story was behind these curious knights, and what exactly they were doing in Lockton University. We went to the third floor where most of the books were kept, and as we walked we passed numerous men and women all engaged in some kind of martial activity. Sparring, cleaning armour, assembling weapons, it was all they seemed to do. And to be honest, that did raise some alarm bells. I tried to pick up what my companions thought about all this, but Vasca and her team were slowly concerned with the books. Sophia looked calm, but I noticed that one hand rested on the hilt of her sabre. When we reached the third floor, I lost all hope of Vasca and her team paying any attention to the knights. I don't know if I've ever seen so many books in one place. Hundreds, maybe thousands of books, all stacked neatly. Vasca forgot about everything else and ran to the nearest shelf. Tracing her hand gently across the spines, she was in paradise. I walked to another bookshelf and picked up a book at random. It was a Stephen King horror, and in quite bad shape, like many of the books were I noticed, but that was understandable after all. Besides, I've always had a soft spot for the well-worn paperback with a broken spine and pages coming loose from the binding, over a mint-conditioned copy which may never have actually been read. The shelves had handwritten notes taped on them, identifying the genre. I was in horror and walked along to the next section, science fiction, and then the next, and by far the largest section, post-apocalyptic fiction. 
I frowned. That was odd. I turned to one of the knights. Are these books from the university? I asked. He shrugged. You'll have to ask Jonathan about the books. He gave me some basic directions that led me out of the library and into an adjoining building. I reached a room that looked like it had once been someone's office. Inside was a man with his back to the door, reading the paperback. Next to him was a desk with a typewriter and a large stack of handwritten notes. There were two other tables piled high with books and a couple of chalkboards covered in writing. I knocked nervously on the door, and despite my lack of much of a formal education, felt like I was back in school. The man jerked in surprise, put the book down on his desk and spun around. Oh, someone new, he said, and leapt up out of his chair and grabbed my hand and shook it vigorously. Jonathan Castlebridge. Richard Oliver, I said, shaking his hand. The knights told me these books were yours. Is that right? That they're not from the university? With a sigh, Castlebridge explained that most of the university lab books had been destroyed. He had saved what he could and scoured the nearby towns and cities for more. Hang on, he asked me. You're not THE Richard Oliver, are you? From the train? It is surely the ambition of any person to be considered the primary example of their particular name, and apparently I had achieved this. I was THE Richard Oliver. I confirmed my identity and he was overjoyed and told me he listened to my show. My friends found me a radio and bring me batteries whenever they can, he said pointing out to the knights. It's quite a coincidence we met, I said. I almost didn't come on this trip. Castlebridge shook his head. I don't believe in coincidences, he said, and I was soon to learn that he really meant it. In the last couple of years, crowdsourcing, and to a lesser extent, crowdfunding, have really taken off. What with the central government authorities' budget stretched to the limit just trying to hold the apocalypse at bay, and a lot of people who are cash poor but time rich. People in Vladivostok are asking anyone able to contribute to their project to build a giant mecha to battle the increase in kaiju threat. People can donate money, but equally important are engineers to help build it, computer programmers to work on software, and everyone to send it their electronic equipment which can be repurposed to build the mecha. Everything from old laptops to toasters could be useful, and I'm sure we all remember the old CGA posters urging us to give our old electronics to the weekly gadget collection. That's what Vladivostok need now. It's a problem we've all been in. Driving down a quiet road when all of a sudden, what do you see ahead? Cars stuck ahead of you. But this isn't roadworks or traffic. It's vicious, possibly cannibalistic gangs of car-obsessed lunatics. Well, an enterprising app developer in Chicago is asking people to submit information on these known post-apocalyptic gangs preying on the more deserted highways in North America. The developer, Kristen Ree, hopes to cover the entirety of North America in a couple of years' time, eventually leading to a live streaming app that will point out potentially dangerous areas up ahead, allowing the driver who plans ahead to avoid a terrible fate, from just having your car stolen to literally being eaten alive. The ill-fated Best of Us project, in which DNA was collected from the best and brightest people from across the world to clone a superhuman, has been trying to clean up its mess it made. They had a hundred clones who pretty much all turned out to be supervillains. Most of them have been rounded up, but a dozen or so are believed to remain at large. Although originally the hundred clones looked more or less the same, their intelligence and skills have led to some truly astonishing disguises. So instead of describing physical features, people are advised to look out for extremely useful loners who turn up in a community where nobody knows them. Usually, some terrible calamity will start troubling the community that has been orchestrated by the clone. 
People should report such sightings on the Best of Us website, and they assure us they will take care of it. People trapped in dangerous situations are increasingly turning to the What Would You Do website. A person uploads a problem, being chased by zombies, crops dying from radiation poisoning, to even being trapped in a sinking car, and people around the world upload their suggested solutions. The effectiveness depends very much on the quality of the information provided by the user and the speed of which people respond, but there are certainly people who faced what they believed to be certain death and were saved by the What Would You Do website. Back to the narrative. I have met a large number of religious zealots, insane cult leaders, and dangerously single-minded idealists. But none of them were quite like Jonathan Castlebridge. On the surface, he looked like a mild-mannered intellectual professor, and in many ways that was exactly what he was. Before the apocalypse, he had taught English literature and creative writing at Lockton University. And he had been quite good at it, adored by his students and respected by his colleagues, and had been working on his first novel, which had attracted the attention of numerous publishers. Castlebridge was the sort of person you wouldn't have expected to survive the apocalypse. But reality had proven there wasn't really a type. Virtually no one who had lived in the modern world had the skills, personality and temperament to survive the apocalypse. Sometimes it was not until crunch time that you realised you did have what it takes to survive. People can adapt quickly, and it can take just a few weeks for a weak, reserved office manager to turn into a brutal and resourceful master of the wilderness. According to Castlebridge, he had had a difficult transition to apocalyptic life, having several near-death experiences and then just the general struggles of trying to find food, water and shelter. After a few years barely managing to survive, Castlebridge had heard about the local warlord and his destruction of some of the university, and he felt compelled to return. For a man who would have lived through a daily tumult of suffering and death, the state of the university had a surprisingly profound effect upon him, and he decided to save whatever was left. Castlebridge set himself up in a building and started bringing anything worth saving into Valen's library. I have heard many similar stories of people who have went to great lengths to protect artistic and cultural treasures, and if that had been the end of Castlebridge's story, I would congratulate him on his good work. But that was not the end. One morning, as Castlebridge had been piling biology journals into a wheelbarrow, he had heard an odd sound and went to explore. He found a woman who seemed inconsolable, babbling about her daughter with a gun in her hand. She was no threat to Castlebridge, as she only intended to harm herself. He managed to get the woman talking, and she told a remarkable story of her and her daughter fleeing danger. They had nearly been killed by bandits, had nearly been eaten by a monster resembling a crocodile mixed with a bat, had nearly drowned in freak storms that seemed to follow them. They had nearly died a lot, and had always just managed to survive. Except the last time, the daughter didn't. What happened next? Castlebridge spoke of it like a flash of divine inspiration and he convinced the woman not to kill herself by telling her that her story wasn't over yet, literally meaning that there was no story where this was the end. Then in fact it was an origin story. Catholic convinced her that her life still had a purpose and it was her duty to see it through. She was the first of the group that congregated around Valen's library, the Knights of Narrative Purpose. Its members were those who had miraculously survived what should have been certain death and whose story, narratively speaking, wasn't over. Castlebridge wasn't their leader, and he didn't give them orders or anything like that, but he had imbued the knights with purpose and gave them appropriately heroic books to read and study. 
Castlebridge had come to view the world as just a series of stories that interacted, and to lead a good life, a person should follow their story. They had been armed mainly from the nearby museums, stately homes, and even the 19th century armoury that had previously been quite a tourist attraction. Castlebridge could see my scepticism. Go on, he said. Ask your question. So, what is the story of the apocalypse, I asked. Castlebridge walked over to the nearest of the chalkboards and flipped it over. It's the big picture. It's the story. If our story is being written by someone, then the apocalypse would be a bored writer wanting change, wanting to overturn the tables and undo everything and start again. We just need to understand the story that has been told and how it's going to end. On the chalkboard were seven bullet points detailing the seven basic plots that academics insisted all stories are based on. Brags to riches, tragedy, overcoming the monster, and so on. Once we know the plot, understanding the story will be much simpler, said Castlebridge. You know, I said, not all stories have happy endings. What if the apocalypse is one of those? Castlebridge shrugged. That's sad, but if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But I don't think everyone dying would be a satisfactory ending. Now, rebirth, that would seem the most obvious plot. Near complete destruction and reborn are something better, something stronger. You really believe this, don't you? I asked him. This isn't a metaphor or a way of helping people. You think this is all just a story? It's something to believe in, said Castlebridge. This explained why the library was full of post-apocalyptic books. It was research. I was eager to ask Castlebridge more questions and find out more about his belief system, but I didn't get the opportunity as he had questions for me. He took out an A4 pad of paper from his desk and wrote my name on the first sheet, and then bombarded me with questions. How many near-death experiences had I had? Was there anything unusual about the circumstances of my birth? Did I have a twin? I was of particular interest to Castlebridge because I was a storyteller of sorts. And once he had finished, he sighed and smiled. Hmm. You see, I'm trying to find the protagonist of this story, and you're not it. At best, you're an unreliable narrator of a smaller story. Castlebridge could tell I was offended by this, and quickly followed up by saying that unless you were the narrator of the whole story, then at best you could be considered unreliable. And this wasn't a comment on my journalistic integrity. And you're looking for one specific person, I asked. Yes, well, I think there could be a number of potential candidates who just need a push to set them on the right path, said Castlebridge. Do you really think the protagonist would just meet you by chance? That seems like quite a coincidence. Castlebridge laughed and said that many great works of fiction relied on far more ridiculous coincidences. You don't want to ask the rest of them the questions? I asked telling him about Vasco and her team. Castlebridge didn't think it was necessary. He opened a filing cabinet and withdrew a big folder. That was his file on my podcast and everyone on the train that I had mentioned. He knew about Annette Vasco and her team, and while he thought they did amazing work, they were not protagonist material, and were, at best, peripheral characters in much smaller storylines. What about Sophia? She's not part of Vasco's team. Castlebridge's eyes went wide and flipped the folder open and sorted through sheets of paper, mumbling information about Sophia. In wrong time and wrong timeline. Polish. Freedom fighter. Would you say she's had a lot of near-death experiences? I nodded. Castlebridge's hands were shaken. Yes, I think I should talk to her. Normally, for who's on board, I will interview a member of the crew or one of the many passengers. We have, wonder we have a wonderfully diverse and interesting crew, 
and it's easy for me to find guests. This edition of Who's On Board will be a little different. We will be talking to the train's sole prisoner, Arabella Turner. Listeners who are familiar with my series The 13 Colonies by Zeppelin will remember Arabella, but for everyone else I shall spend a moment explaining how she came to be on board. I first met Arabella in Georgia, North America, and she appeared to be the wife of a local warlord, a huge brute of a man who went by the name Hacker. She was from the beginning charming, friendly, and eager to maintain good relationships between her, Hacker, and us, and she seemed to be a moderating influence on her husband. That was until Hacker's army tried to kill us all and capture the Zeppelin. We managed to repulse the attack and leave the area. At the time, I had feared for Arabella's life, but soon word reached us that Hacker was dead, killed by his wife who had assumed control of his army. I had found this hard to believe at first, but she soon made a name for herself in the south of North America as a brutal and sadistic warlord, who nonetheless continued an outward appearance of a genteel lady. After her army had fought and lost a central government authority army sent to put her down, the world had thought she was dead, until she somehow turned up in Italy, this time the leader of a mysterious cult, but in keeping with her usual behaviour, were brutal and sadistic. In fact, whatever Arabella did, you can add the words brutal and sadistic. Eventually, this cult too was dealt with, but Arabella had a habit of vanishing after a defeat and resurfacing a few months later with some new project on the go. Arabella has been held in CGA prisons on eight separate occasions, and as well as orchestrating prison riots and killing guards, she has escaped every time. The last time she had been captured, she asked if her imprisonment could be on this train, and a special carriage was built to house her. She had been on board for nearly two years, with zero escape attempts. Some people feel the specially built carriage prison has worked, whereas I think she has chosen to remain in captivity. So why am I interviewing her? From the first day she was on board, she has asked to be interviewed by me, and after much consideration, the captain has decided to agree. I met Arabella in her carriage prison, her guards just outside. Good morning, Miss Turner. Oh, come on now, Richard. We're old friends. I insist. You call me Arabella. You tried to kill me. Not a good basis for friendship. I disagree, Richard. That's a very close relationship. Besides, I didn't try to have you killed as such. It wasn't personal. You were just in the way. Okay, well, good morning to you. You're looking very well today, Richard. Positively glowing with health. Um, thank you, I suppose. So, Arabella, what did you want to talk about? This is an interview. You should be asking me the questions, right? Yes, now... You have escaped from prison on eight separate occasions. How did you do it? Escape is a drastic word. I just needed some fresh air. But still, eight times, eight different prisons. It's impressive. I'll let you in on a little secret, Richard. I was going for the record. The breaking out of prison record? Yeah, that's why I let myself keep being captured. Now, Arabella. You hardly let yourself get captured. So, how did you escape? I went about my ways with a, a little charm. You charmed your way out of prison? 
eight times. At the last prison in Cordoba, you were there for two months, killed three guards, hospitalized five others, and you charmed them into letting you go. Absolutely. I will admit, you are a very charismatic individual, but no one has that much charm. And I think people don't realize how dangerous you are at first. Yeah, I mean, because I'm a woman? No, because you're so pleasant and helpful. When we first met, you were pouring everyone tea and offering us homemade cookies. Why, thank you. I pride myself on being a good host. And you are a good host, right up to the time you start killing your guests. Now, you've had a variety of different careers, warlord, assassin, and according to your Wikipedia entry, interior designer. Considering you were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, is there anything you feel like you've missed out on, as you will never, ever be released from prison? Now, never say never, Richard. But when you do get to a certain age, you do think about missed opportunities. Things you haven't done. Now, I always wanted to be the queen. Or, might it be even an empress. I was so jealous of Lizzie when she became the Queen of England. <sighs> queen Arabella. It just sounds right to me. The apocalypse offers such wonderful opportunities to advance yourself. I don't think that's how most people see the apocalypse. That's their mistake, Richard. That's their problem. I didn't want to just survive the apocalypse. I wanted to come out the other side. As a winner. Don't you have any... I hesitate to use the word normal. Well, ambitions that don't involve killing people. Killing people is the new normal, you know? But I think I know what you're getting at. And no, I don't feel like I missed out on being an architect or a plumber or whatever it is people do these days. Arabella, you're a little bit older than me. I was a young child when the apocalypse started. Were you... I mean, before all this... Was I always going to be like this before the apocalypse? Was I always going to be a murderer and warlord? Or did the apocalypse change me? Now, who knows? But I'm happy I'm like this now. There is one thing I've been dying to ask you. Why did you ask to be imprisoned on the train? Well, I do love me to travel. And being in prison will stop you from doing that. This way, I get to see the world. So, considering that you're in your cell practically 24-7, closely guarded, how does a person who has led such an interest in life entertain herself? Well, I always had many hobbies, Richard. I like to read, I like to exercise, I worked on my memoirs on and off for a little while. Hell, I like to draw and paint too. I like to do various arts and crafts, but goddammit the security guards keep on taking away my scissors. You know you're not allowed scissors for a very good reason. In previous prisons, you stab people with anything sharp you get your hands on. How do you have scissors? She, she shouldn't have scissors. We had to end the interview there as the guards rushed in to take the scissors away from Arabella and restrain her. In fairness, I should say she gave up the scissors without a fight and seemed to find the whole thing funny. And she didn't actually threaten me. Still, I was very glad the guards were there. Sophia was not very impressed by what I told her about Castlebridge and the Knights. It all seemed a bit postmodern to her, and given that she had missed modernism, she had very little time for postmodernism. 
I honestly didn't know if Castlebridge could take the disappointment if Sophia didn't agree to talk to him, and eventually she relented. I waited outside the office while Castlebridge asked his questions, but I could tell from Sophia's repeated shrugs and Castlebridge's nervous energy that it was not going terribly well. The interview ended and Castlebridge put down a notepad he had been writing on and signalled for me to come in. Sophia, I think you could be the protagonist of this story. Sophia shrugged. I could tell Castlebridge was disappointed by her shrug. But unwilling to be put off, he continued. Sophia could be the person who truly ended the apocalypse. She was capable of great things. Far greater than hanging around on the train and saving my life every other week. Which personally, I think is a very important job. I didn't think Sophia would go for this. She had lived through the time of the French Revolution and Napoleon's wars. She was sceptical of great causes and people who talked about dramatically changing the world. And it didn't help that all Castlebridge had to support his pitch were vague notions of something that sounded like a mix of destiny, literary criticism and a group of people cosplaying medieval knights. Sophia announced that she had no interest in any of this and got up to leave. She brushed past Castlebridge and left the room. I walked over to Castlebridge and muttered non-specific apologetic cliches that I kept filed away in my mind for dealing with disappointed people. I turned to leave and found that the knight stood in the doorway, looking worryingly aggressive. I looked back at Castlebridge hoping he could smooth out whatever problem they had with me. So what is she? asked one of the knights. Castlebridge confirmed that yes, he thought she was a potential protagonist. He then put his hand on my shoulder. And she won't help us, he said. She's too involved in Richard's narrative. The knight nodded and looked at me. So, are you going to stop? Stop what, I asked. The knight walked up to me and leaned in dangerously close. I stepped back and she stepped forward again. Realising that no matter how far back I moved, she would close the distance, I decided to stand my ground. Stop the podcast. Stop the counter-narrative, she hissed. There had been people who have insisted I make changes to my show. And occasionally, some have even demanded that I stop altogether. And this has been accompanied by threats of violence. None of them were two inches from my face, gripping an axe. I have already ran through my shallow reserve of bravery and artistic integrity to move to a different tactic. Look, if I stop doing the podcast, Zofia still won't do whatever it is you want her to do. Castlebridge finally came to my aid. He's right, that won't work, he said. I think... I think you need to kill him. I'll leave it there for this episode, with me seemingly about to be sacrificed to the gods of good story writing. At the End of the Line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Victoria Dubendorf is our audio engineer who works on making everything sound better. Find Victoria on Twitter at Tyranatori. In this episode, Tori also played Arabella Turner. Tori has her own brilliant podcast, Athena, a sci-fi audio drama. Go to athenapodcast.libsyn.com or search for Athena Podcast on Twitter. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website. 
at theunderlinepodcast.squarespace.com.